Greetings, everybody, and welcome to November 2021, right on Prime. I'm Vanessa Cardi, joining Heidi James in the co-host hot seat this month. So good to see you again, Vanessa. It's hard to believe it's been about a month since we chatted. How are things going? Things are trucking along. There's ice hockey on TV. And most importantly, we are releasing this month's Right on Prime. Podcasting hockey, baby! Well, I'm glad you're here, Vanessa, because we have an excellent show in store this month, and it is chock full of neat things to talk about. But before we get into that, I wanted to tell you a little bit about a case I saw in the clinic the other day. All right, tell me more. So this is really bread and butter primary care stuff, but there's just a little bit of a twist that I thought would be good to review. So this particular case and the topic at hand is treatment-resistant hypertension. This is definitely very common and can be very tricky, and it's not nearly as straightforward as we would like to think it is. So the patient is a 56-year-old male who has a history of essential hypertension that is not yet sufficiently controlled. His blood pressure runs in the 160s over 100. With regards to comorbidities, he's a past smoker, he's obese, and has mild asthma that's relatively well-managed. He has a very strong family history of essential hypertension. His current medications are an ACE inhibitor with a diuretic and a long-acting calcium channel blocker. So specifically, he's on perindopril 8 milligrams with endapamide 2.5, you know, that really nice combination of an ACE and a diuretic. And he's also on amlodipine 10 milligrams once daily. So he's been on that ACE-diuretic combo for about a year, and this brought his systolic blood pressure down from the 180s to the 160s, And then at that point, because there wasn't much improvement, we added the amlodipine. And we've since been titrating that up with actually little improvement for the past few months. And I was a bit stymied because, you know, we've talked about lifestyle and all of that stuff. And that medication combo, well, that's usually the trifecta, Vanessa. I can get just about anybody's blood pressure under control with that. For most people, they're usually very well controlled with one, maybe two medications, but your patient is already on three, and that's the definition in and of itself of resistant hypertension. Not yet at target despite three medications or requiring four medications to reach the target. So why do you think your patient's blood pressure is up? Do they have a secondary cause, perhaps? I'm glad you mentioned that, Vanessa, because when blood pressure isn't as easily managed as we think it is, we really need to go looking for a secondary cause. Now, so you're obviously going to hold out on answering my question here. (laughs) So until we've run through the entire formal approach to treatment-resistant hypertension, aren't you? (laughs) You know me well, and the answer is yes. (laughs) All right, well then, proceed. Well, thankfully, the American Journal of Hypertension reviewed the topic of treatment-resistant and refractory hypertension back in 2019. So that's where I turned to figure out how to manage this patient's blood pressure. So what did it tell us to do in terms of the workup? So the workup of resistant hypertension. First thing, you need to figure out if these blood pressure readings that you're getting or that the patient is getting are accurate. Are they using the proper cuff size, proper positioning, etc.? Second thing, determine if this is white coat hypertension. Is their blood pressure just crazy high when they're in the office? So you need to look at ambulatory blood pressure monitoring and blood pressure monitoring in the community. Thirdly, review lifestyle issues with your patients. Find out what are they eating? Are they exercising? Is there anything going on that can contribute to this blood pressure that just won't settle? Fourthly, review their medications. And what comes to mind here, Vanessa? Any ideas? Well, I'm assuming NSAIDs would probably be on the list. Yeah, yeah. NSAIDs are always on the list for hypertension. Also, oral contraceptives, some antidepressants, and the perennial favorite, cocaine. 
Ah, yes, cocaine. The drug that no one tells you they're on. (laughs) And lastly, and what we were talking about earlier, is the secondary cause of their elevated blood pressure. You need to figure out what's going on. Do they have renal artery stenosis? Do they have sleep apnea? Is there too much aldosterone floating around in their body? Do they have a FEO? There's so, so many things. Well, actually, there's not that many, but we have to rule them out. Well, that's a pretty comprehensive list, but you have yet to mention the most likely culprit, which is medication adherence. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's exactly what's going on with my patient. We had previously worked him up to rule out all of these secondary causes. He's working on lifestyle, and we confirmed that the readings we were seeing were his actual readings. So his blood pressure was up because, like so many people who are on multiple medications, he was running into side effects. Well, that certainly isn't surprising, but which side effects in particular were bothering him? It's a textbook case, Vanessa. He had developed a dry, chronic cough. Now, he'd been on the ACE inhibitor for over a year, but a couple of months ago is when he developed the cough, and Google told him it was his ACE inhibitor. So he stopped the medication, which, of course, is in combination with the diuretic. So when he stopped that medication, he stopped two of his three antihypertensives. And that explains why his blood pressure did not get better with the addition of amlodipine, because amlodipine was the solo agent. I'm just actually surprised it didn't get an awful lot worse. And But what happened to this gentleman's cough? Did it get any better? I hope he isn't harboring a secret lung cancer or something. You did mention he was a smoker. Yeah, his cough had improved off the ACE inhibitor. We did a chest x-ray, of course, just to be cautious, but his cough improved a lot better once he stopped the ACE. And what about the blood pressure? Where did you land um, in terms of the meds? Well, we switched him to an ARB, an angiotensin receptor blocker diuretic combo, and were able to get his blood pressure somewhat under control with that, but then did end up adding amlodipine 5 milligrams, and that brought him nicely to target. And he's continuing all those lifestyle changes too. So if he's successful with those, we might be able to lower his medications even more. This was actually a case of pseudo-treatment-resistant hypertension and a reminder to check on medication adherence in these cases. But, of course, I think the other thing to remember here is that we ask our patients to take a lot of medications, and those side effects can certainly build up. They sure can. So that was the twist to the story. If anyone is listening and is interested in a little bit of a read on how to treat true treatment-resistant hypertension, we're going to include a link to that article in the show notes because it's an interesting read. Speaking of the show, what's up for the rest of this month's Right on Prime? Well, we have Steve and Ken in the 10 as they review the 10 papers for PCMA. Hobie is here to talk about antibiotic stewardship. We tackle an approach to HSP or Henoch Shonline Purpura. And then later on, Adrian Salim joins us and goes over some great tips and tricks for bridging a patient to dialysis in the rural medicine section. And on The Generalist, Josh Newson brought us one of his Anywhere EM segments with an approach to hypothermia when you aren't in the hospital or the clinic. So with that preview behind us, let's launch straight into November 2021, right on Prime. Coming to you from semi-scenic Loma Linda, California, it's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Hey, Hobie, good to see you. It's good to see you too. How are you doing? I am doing swell. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah? So I wanted to talk to you about antibiotics. Are you ready? I am ready. I'm ready. Okay. So we're going to start with a quiz. I I know you weren't expecting this. No, I was not expecting a quiz. I may embarrass myself here, but uh, but go for it. Okay. So we're going to talk about infections and duration of therapy. And this is kind of like a final jeopardy question. 
So,、uh, yeah, so the question is how long do you treat an infection? It depends on which infection we're talking about, which bacteria it is. Okay, you're wasting time. <laughs> you're wasting time.、Um, okay, seven to ten days. Yes, that's right. Because <laughs> it's always right. It doesn't seem to matter where the infection is or what antibiotic you're using or what bacteria you're treating, right? The correct answer always seems to be seven to ten days, right? But it's never eight or nine nope, days. Nope. It's always seven or ten days. That's right, seven or ten days. If it's shorter, <laughs> you think seven days. If it's a little longer, you want to do ten days. Exactly, exactly. And so the question is, how can that be right? How can that always be right? Especially since we talked about there are several factors, including the type of infection, the type of antibiotic, and the type of bacteria that we're trying to treat. So let's talk a little bit about antibiotic stewardship. First things first. What is antibiotic stewardship? The CDC says antibiotic stewardship is an effort to measure. And improve how antibiotics are prescribed by clinicians and used by patients. Improving antibiotic prescribing and the use is critical to effectively treat infections, protect patients from harms caused by unnecessary antibiotic use, and combat antibiotic resistance. We for sure know that antibiotic resistance is a really big problem. It's a huge problem. There's up to two million infections and twenty-three thousand deaths in the United States per year that are linked to antibiotic resistance. And we have a lot to do with Asobia's primary care docs because 50% of all outpatient antibiotics are prescribed by us. That's right. And 143,000 emergency room visits for allergic reactions are allergic reactions to antibiotics. And this one really bothers me the most. There are 150,000 cases of community-acquired C. diff per year, and that is caused by antibiotics. Yeah, 150,000. <laughs> That's shocking to me. I am old school、uh, in the sense that when I think about C. diff, I think of it as a hospital infection, right? It's a hospitally acquired infection. But now we know that there is a community acquired C. diff, and so I would say we have a lot to do as primary care physicians with antibiotic stewardship. What are some of the suggestions, Heidi, that you have in terms of antibiotic stewardship? Well, my suggestions come from the CDC. <laughs> uh, we'll just say what they have to say. Number one. First up, they recommend not prescribing antibiotics for conditions that don't need it. This makes sense. You know, most URIs and bronchitis and pharyngitis, most of those are viral. They don't need antibiotics. Number two. They also recommend not prescribing antibiotics for potentially overdiagnosed conditions. So this would be someone who shows up, you know, my throat's sore, and you treat them for presumed strep rather than doing the rapid strep testing or、right. even calculating the Centaur criteria. Exactly. Yep. Number three. Thirdly, don't prescribe the wrong antibiotic for the condition. This is very tempting to do sometimes if you're seeing a patient who has multiple allergies. You're just like, oh, you're not allergic to hmm, oxyfloxacin. I'll just give you that. Number four. Fourthly, do not prescribe an antibiotic when you can just employ watchful waiting. An example of this would be a school-age kid who has a mild otitis. Like the symptoms are easily managed with analgesia; they're not sick, they're not toxic, they look good. You can really just keep an eye on them clinically rather than giving them an antibiotic right away. I mean, we do need to treat the more moderate ones, but most of them we can just do watchful waiting. Number five. And then fifthly, Hobie, now that we know what we're not supposed to do. This is what we're supposed to do, and this is to prescribe antibiotics without delay for serious conditions. So sepsis and STDs, 
and limb-threatening cellulitis and meningitis come to mind. Yeah, yeah. I think that's super interesting because the first four of those deal with things we shouldn't do. But I think it's really interesting that the CDC says, okay, that's all true. But actually, the other problem is that maybe in very critical situations like you talked about, we're not aggressive enough. Meningitis, sepsis, all of those things, we, you know, we, we would say, oh, of course. Uh, but even things like STDs, where there is a public health risk of that STD spreading to the, within the community, you know, the CDC says, well, don't wait, right? Don't sit on those, aggressively treat those so they don't spread within your community. One of the interesting things that the CDC recommends for institutions is that they have a champion of antibiotic stewardship. So I don't know how big your shop has to be to have a champion of anything, let alone yeah. a champion of antibiotic uh -huh. stewardship. We're not big enough, but how about you? Yeah, so we are an academic health center, so we do have infectious disease doctors who are in charge of antibiotic stewardship. But I will tell you, they are much more focused on the inpatient hospital setting than in the outpatient clinic. And as we mentioned before, you know, that's pretty only half the problem. The United States as a whole, we prescribe a lot of outpatient antibiotics. And so, but you know, the problem is it's an open healthcare system. So patients, providers, pharmacies, insurers can all be different. It would be very difficult to have real stewardship unless all those groups agree to work together. Or if you have a closed system like maybe Kaiser or even maybe a single payer system like Canada or the UK where there are some ways maybe that you guys can control how antibiotics are given out. I don't know, is there any kind of antibiotic stewardship at a national level in Canada? Our national licensing bodies, like the College of Family Physicians, does provide good education on the topic, and the provincial governments and medical societies do do some like public information campaigns to let people know. I mean, we do get a lot of that here, too. I know there are nonprofit organizations talking about antibiotic stewardship, and I remember getting kind of pamphlets and flyers from them. So every cough and cold season, they send out this big, beautiful poster that you can put up in your waiting room that talks about how most colds are caused by viruses and don't need antibiotics, right? And kind of handouts on how you talk to your patients about these issues. So I do think that it's an issue that needs addressing and, and not just us as physicians, but there are organizations looking at this issue. I will say the other key point the CDC recommends is to make sure you document carefully why you are not prescribing antibiotics and to provide patient education and counseling to that effect. I really think that's kind of the missing piece I always feel like I'm arguing with patients on why they don't need antibiotics, but I'm doing a really bad job of explaining why, like what's really happening in their disease process and why an antibiotic is not the right choice for them, right? It's not like me and my patients have dissimilar goals. The patient wants to get better and I want them to get better. It's not that I'm wishing they're suffering and demise, right? <laughs> I just, I, I know that's what the patient feels like. What's, that's what's happening, right? Is that I'm, yeah. I'm withholding to hurt them. But I don't want that to be the case. I want my patients and me to feel like we're on the same side, right? And that what yeah. we're actually combating is their illness, not, not that we're fighting each other. Yeah. And even if we're not prescribing antibiotics, there are still things we can recommend. And I think sometimes in our zeal to not prescribe something, we forget that really patients just want to feel better. And if we can make other suggestions and offer other things to help them, and that can include education, they can leave satisfied. Z-pack or not. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Okay, Heidi, we're going to do the quiz again, right? Yay. I'm going to do better this time. <laughs> I'm going to provide you with a diagnosis, and I want you to tell me the shortest duration, shortest duration you can get away with that's recommended for the condition, okay? 
Okay. We'll do these a little bit more rapid fire style, so we won't be digging into all the details around this, but let's try, okay? Okay, I'm set. Otitis, media, and kids. This is a trick question, Hobartley. How dare you start with a (laughs) trick question? (laughs) Because I just finished saying a few minutes ago that you can use watchful waiting for mild otitises. But if you're going to treat, the antibiotic and antibiotic duration depends on the age. In kids who are six and older, you can use amoxicillin for as short as five days. Yes. All right. So I admit I was going to trick you right away, (laughs) but you're right. So it's age dependent, right? And I think that's the key here, especially for kids. We often think, oh, you got to do 10 days, you got to do 10 days. And that's maybe true for younger kids with more severe disease. But as they get older, you definitely can shorten up the duration. So that's good. Five days. Okay. How about uncomplicated UTI? Oh, I know this one. The correct answer is one day. Yes. One dose treatment with phosphomycin. Love that drug. Yes. It's older than me and it's cheap and you drink it. It's awesome. Okay. So technically that is correct. I will be fully honest. I have never, ever prescribed phosphomycin. (gasps) You, sir, are missing out on an awful lot of joy. Happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy. I think part of the challenge here is I'm not sure every U.S. pharmacy stocks phosphomycin because, yeah, I just haven't seen a lot of it used outside of the hospital. I mean, sometimes in the hospital we'll use it, but outside of that, I don't see a lot of it prescribed on an outpatient basis. I mean, I might be the only reason the pharmacies have it in (laughs) stock because I prescribe so much of it, but, (laughs) but we have it here. Yeah. No, I, and so, yes, one day. You could also go with three days of trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole or five days of nitrofurantoin, which I know are two more common things that I personally prescribe and have seen prescribed. Round two. Next one, staying with the urine, uh, pyelonephritis. That is five days if you use a fluoroquid alone. Okay. But since we're trying to limit those, the correct answer is 10 days with a beta-lactam type antibiotic. Fantastic. You're right. Yes. So Woohoo. as short as five days, especially uh, if you're using fluoroquinolone. But as you mentioned, we've really tried to cut down on the use of those. And so we're switching to other things, only using fluoroquinolones when we absolutely have to. Right. And so yeah. 10 days of a beta-lactam would be perfect. Okay. All right. A few more common infections. How about community-acquired pneumonia? Not the 14 days we used to use. It's now five days with a plan to reassess and extend PRN. Yes. So that's, yeah, perfect. So five days. I think that's the point. Is like you can always extend therapy if you need to. You can schedule them for follow-up in your clinic, but you can't take back the antibiotic if they've already swallowed it, right? <laughs> I guess you could reach in there and try, but patients generally find that to be an uncomfortable thing. <laughs> so Very uh, true. That's right. So the IDSA recommends five days, but there is evidence that patients have gotten away with as short as three or five days. And so it's kind of shocking to me. Yeah, three days of treatment for community-acquired pneumonia makes me feel very uncomfortable, but um, there is evidence around that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. A couple more. Uh, Sinusitis. Sinusitis. I remember very clearly in training, like, Heidi, you always need to prescribe at least two weeks of antibiotics for sinusitis because the antibiotics don't penetrate the sinus as well. We now know that's wrong, and it's five days, kind of like pneumonia. We now know that even three days or maybe, maybe even a single dose of azithromycin, extended-release azithromycin, might be as effective as a longer course. Yeah, this blew my mind. Outside of phosphomycin for UTI, really, I have not heard of anything that you could give one dose of an antibiotic and be cured of an infection of any kind, right? And so the idea that a single dose of extended release azithromycin might cure sinusitis, but there's data behind it. 
otolaryngologists have have done some studies that show that this could be effective. And so really not maybe for prime time use yet, but a lot of the experts say for maybe mild or moderate sinusitis, uh, that could be an option, especially if you're worried about compliance and all that kind of stuff. A single dose might be enough. Okay, last one, cellulitis. Cellulitis is five days. In 2021, this year, the American College of Physicians Best Practice Advisory said so. They recommend five to six days with primary care provider follow-up. Yeah, five days. <laughs> Gone is the seven or 10 days of antibiotics, right? There is a strong sense that we are, the duration for a lot of these common infections is too long. Congratulations, Heidi, you got 100% right. You must be a family physician. Yes, definitely. Because all those things are things that we treat. It's sinusitis, cellulitis, community-acquired pneumonia, UTIs, pyelonephritis. That's a Tuesday morning for us. And so like that, <laughs> that is why it's so important for us as primary care physicians to think about this is because this is real world stuff. This is the stuff we deal in day in and day out in our practices. Yeah. And we tend to focus a lot on it on the hospital inpatient side. At least that's where I spend more of my mental energy focusing on it. But this is a good reminder that antibiotic stewardship is important in the community, that it is a primary care issue and one that we all have responsibility for. Yeah, like we talked about avoiding unnecessary antibiotics, many of the frequent antibiotic regimens that we have prescribed can be prescribed for much shorter than the seven or 10 day treatment that we normally reflexively write on our prescriptions. I'd say the only right answer to the seven to 10 day question is how many days in a row should you eat ice cream? <laughs> After about seven or 10 days, you really should take a break. Let's have ice cream! cardiac arrest and our building just lost power all right give me jumper cables rubber gloves three thousand grams of soul medrol stack what are you macgyver no i'm the generalist. generalist greetings all this is vanessa cardi and i am very pleased to welcome back to the show joshua newson so today joshua is going to be talking to us about hypothermia but first let's hear a little bit about him whereabouts are you from and where are you working at the moment Hi, Vanessa. I'm just outside of Detroit, and I moved here for a residency about three years ago. And last time I got to be on The Generalist, I was a resident. Now I'm uh, full-blown attending a few months later. Feels good, doesn't it? Well, congratulations, because that's a great accomplishment. So that brings us to your project, Anywhere EM, which I believe is something you started during residency, and which really was sort of a thought experiment for you to work through different ways that you would be able to tackle common emergencies that we might see in the emergency department, but how you would tackle those if you were outside of the hospital situation. Why don't you give us a bit of insight into that? The reason I did emergency medicine is because when I was a child, everybody asked me to babysit, but I was terrified something bad would happen. And so I got all the books I could about worst case scenario. And I think that's really why I went into emergency medicine is to figure out what do you do if something bad happens and you know, you're all alone or you're the one that people are looking to kind of done this project to really teach myself and hoping to teach other people important things about what do you do when you're out there either in the wilderness or just at a friend's house or on an airplane? How do you help people? And so I'm trying to go through some of the most common things that we'll see while we're out there on our own. Well, I love this idea. And so thanks for joining us again. And I believe today you want to talk to us about hyperthermia and not just the hypothermia that we might see in our homeless patients, say, perhaps in the wintertime. Because what I think one of the first key points here really is that hypothermia can be a side effect of so many different issues in the field. Even, for example, when that field is perhaps, say, in the middle of the desert. 
And maybe I'll just start out by saying 18% of soldiers that were admitted to a combat support hospital in Iraq were hypothermic on arrival. So that's Iraq. And really, just to to bring it home, even 10% of civilian trauma patients in America, they arrive hypothermic. And this is a number that holds true even in Las Vegas and Texas. So it is much more common than we think, and it's devastating. It affects many, many systems, and I'm hoping we'll get to talk about that. Now, you've already given us some of those astonishing statistics related to trauma. So let's tackle that first, the trauma. How does trauma lead to hypothermia? Trauma can cause traumatic brain injuries, and that can lead to things like a delayed shivering mechanism. But also blood loss is a major cause of hypothermia, certainly environmental exposures. But alcohol, I mean, can't tell you how many times I'm called to the trauma bay, and the ideology of the trauma is alcohol, which in and of itself can cause a patient to be hypothermic. And of course, why all of this matters is that hypothermia in the context of trauma significantly decreases trauma survival rates. Now let's quickly just remind the listeners of the myriad of ways that hypothermia can affect our physiology. Now for me, what really pops to mind is that issue of the cardiac problems. If someone is hypothermic, their myocardium is all irritable. But aside from the dysrhythmias, what other systems can be affected? In terms of the kidneys, it could lead to kidney failure pretty easily. Actually, the incidence of hypothermia-induced AKI, it was noted to be in over 40% of patients with accidental hypothermia that required admission to an ICU. You know, the brain also, but it actually decreases your intracranial pressure. So certainly can lead to mental status changes such as confusion, you know, loss of consciousness even, liver damage, you know, breakdown of muscle. You can certainly see rhabdomyolysis from this, which also can affect the kidneys. It all goes together. I think one of the most obvious and most important systems that it affects is bleeding. Cold blood does not clot. You know, this is a fact I got from crisismedicine.com. I don't have any financial relationship with them, but I have gotten a lot of great information from them. You know, a drop of only five degrees Fahrenheit in your body temperature or two and a half degrees Celsius to 93 degrees, that increases the person's rate of death by 28%. That's an astounding figure. But I think it really makes sense if you think back on all those trauma patients that you might have seen either in training or during your practice. And, you know, thinking, why are they just oozing so much? It's just oozing, oozing, even when you've got some of the bigger bleeds under control. And it certainly makes sense if they're hypothermic, then their blood is not clotting because it is cold. So before we get to how to take care of someone who has hypothermia, let's go over some of the signs and symptoms that we might see in someone, depending on whether they have mild, moderate, or more severe hypothermia. Good point, right, because you need to recognize it, and not everybody's going to have a thermometer If you notice that the person you're with, if they're unable to perform complex tasks with their hands, or let's say they have, you know, start to show poor judgment, if they start to have amnesia, these are all signs that actually can be due to hypothermia. Now, shivering is another thing, but definitely not something you want to wait to see because once you get to a certain level of hypothermia, you, you have lost your shivering reflex. You know, a moderate hypothermia would be confusion. People start to slur their speech, start to act irrationally. You'll even see dilated pupils. You'll see hypotension. And then you're going to see their respiratory rate starts to go down and down, and even their effort starts to go down. You know, to contrast that with severe hypothermia, you're going to see erratic breathing at that point. You're going to see that they start to have absent response to pain, muscle rigidity you'll feel, skin becomes very pale. Actually, the pulse rate is going to increase. And then, you know, you certainly could start to feel or sense cardiac arrhythmias. Okay, so now that we understand that hypothermia can affect anyone, and that it can certainly have dire consequences, and now we know how to recognize some of the signs, what can we do to prevent it? Let's say we come across a hiker who fell, maybe busted up his leg and has been lying out on the trail, kind of oozing blood there for a few hours. 
What are some of the things that we need to do to act in that moment before we get that patient to an emergency room? Absolutely. So controlling the bleeding is very important. So we talked about you bleed more when you're hypothermic, but also you become more hypothermic by bleeding. So really controlling the bleeding in the best ways you can. Now, certainly we always talk about A, B, C, D, and then E with exposure. You know, we always, it's very important to completely undress the patient and look at every inch of skin. But I worry that sometimes in the trauma bay and certainly in the field, sometimes we forget to, to redress them. So very important that you only strip the clothes and the protective gear from the patients when it's necessary and for a minimal amount of time. And, you know, if the clothing is wet, you want to replace that wet clothing with dry clothing as soon as possible. That sounds obvious, but when you're in the field, it's not like you have a spare change of clothes. So a sleeping bag, a sweatshirt, bedding, blankets or towels, anything to cover them up, you know, also keeping their, their clothing clean and free from dirt. Dirt is 55 degrees Fahrenheit, and if we're 98.6, that is just going to suck the thermal energy out of them. Certainly, we want to actively and often dry any fluids from the patient, so that would be sweat, obviously, rain. I think those are things we think about, but even blood, even if you have some dried blood on a patient, so that's going to evaporate, and that's going to be a very powerful cooling mechanism, which might be the exact opposite of what you want. You want to keep the patient's head covered, um, even with a shirt or a towel, whatever you have to reduce heat loss. And then for fluid resuscitation, you want to use warm fluids. Now you're going to ask, where in the world am I going to get a fluid warmer? Like, it's hard enough to find it, you know, when people come into your level one trauma center. But where are you going to find a fluid warmer when you're out in the field camping with friends or just in somebody's backyard? But your groin is a really good fluid warmer. You know, your, your shirt pockets um, or your axilla, put it in your pants or put it, you know, put it underneath your shirt. That's a very powerful and quick way to, to warm fluids. Oral rehydration is also very important and is going to get into the bloodstream. So yeah, if, let's say you have some water bottles. So those you'd want to kind of tuck away in your shirts. I think if someone handed us a cold bottle of water and a bag of IV fluids, we would instinctively say, okay, we're going to try and warm up this IV fluid by putting it in our armpits or in, you know, in our pants. <laughs> but if someone gave you a water bottle, it probably wouldn't be on most of our sort of radar to say, I'm going to warm that up too. It's a really good thing to remember. Even if you've got a Gatorade, warm it up. Right. Nothing quite as good as warm Gatorade. Introducing Warm Gatorade. It's in the pants. Good point. And then, yeah, certainly wrap the patient in, in multiple blankets with heat sources. You want to put those heat sources the same place you put when you're cooling a patient. If you ever have a patient with heat stroke or something, so you'll put it in the neck and the armpits and the groin and at the palms of the hands, but they always want to have material between the heat source and the skin. I didn't realize hypothermic skin, it burns easily. It burns at 102 degrees Fahrenheit. So you want to be very careful to make sure there's a, an insulator or a barrier between your heat source and the patient. A few other things that we can use to prevent a patient becoming hypothermic or to stop it in its tracks is you want to avoid overheating. You know, right? You're covering them in all these blankets, but you want to keep frequently assessing. If that's causing them to perspire, if they're sweating, well, that's going to cause them to become hypothermic later on as the person cools, whether through shivering or through evaporation. So you got to make sure that you're warming them, but not to the point of sweating. And then you also, we talked about how dirt is 55 degrees. So not only do you not want it on their clothes, but you also don't want it right underneath them. So you want to have a barrier between them and the ground. That's something important to remember. Let's take it up a notch. Let's talk about a person warmer. How do we warm up that whole person? You can provide immense amount of body heat to a person just by putting them in contact with you. Or, you know, if you're running the show, you can delegate and make somebody else be their body warmer. And then certainly you want to try and get them out of the weather. So you want to get them inside if possible. You know, vehicle is probably the most likely thing that you're going to have around. And then Always remember to, to handle the patient gently and immobilize, you know, as you're trying to get them to a better environment. You don't want to vigorously massage them or manipulate them in any way because you can actually end up inducing these cardiac dysrhythmias. They're in a, in a very fragile state. 
Okay, so I think we've covered a lot of ground here about how to recognize signs of hyperthermia in someone who we might be seeing out and about on the hiking trails or even, you know, on a camping trip or even, as you said, in the middle of Las Vegas, walking down the strip. And then we've also talked about different ways to prevent the situations getting worse and then things to do to uh, warm this patient up and get them to definitive care in their healthiest state possible because it could be a while before they get there. So let's take advantage of the time we have with them. Do you have any little points that you want to say in summary? Any little pearls for us to remember? Recap. I do want to kind of draw attention to that idea that hypothermia is much more common than we think, and it's much more powerful than I think we give it credit for. It can affect so many, so many organ systems simultaneously. And if you want the most bang for your buck, you know, going after hypothermia is, you know, you can affect, you can improve multiple organ systems at once. I really appreciate all of the insights that you've given us and all of the pearls, and I'm looking forward to hearing about more scary things that can happen outside of the emergency department and urgent care department (laughs) 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 on a future date. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Josh. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Vanessa. IgA vasculitis with Chris Drum. Heidi. Do you see children in your practice? We have some family doctors that only see four and up or 12 and up, but I want to get patients when they're young. Really bring them in, you know, three, four days old. So basically, a few days after discharge. Yeah, I I love, I love seeing kids. It's one of my favorite parts of my practice. I love kids, especially my own. (laughs) But what I don't like is when a child shows up for an outpatient visit looking very ill. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole different ball of wax than routine pediatric care. That's a different story. Sick kids make me nervous. They do make me a little bit nervous, too, and I hope that this is a case about a sick child. I mean, not for the child's sake, but it always makes for good learning. Oh, yes. On this specific day, I walk in and there's an eight-year-old, and for five days, he's had a history of foot pain, and at this point, was barely walking. In my outpatient office, I was surprised because his father had actually carried him in. Wow, that kid must be in a lot of discomfort. Did you find out how the pain progressed? It started with pain in his feet, and then his knees. And then around the same time, they say he started to develop spots. But at this point, seeing a child who within a few days couldn't walk due to joint pain made me quite nervous. Yeah, yeah, understandably. What did you do for this little guy? I sent him right to the ER. I said, do not pass go, do not collect $200. I call over to the pediatric ER near my office and gave them my thoughts. This patient with the joint pain And having purpura, I wanted him to get a stat CBC, PT, PTT, and evaluation right away. What did your emergency colleagues end up thinking? Did he end up with a diagnosis? This patient was diagnosed with HSP, Henoch-Schonlein purpura, also called IgA vasculitis. So tell me all about IgA vasculitis. IgA vasculitis is an acute, systemic, immune complex-mediated leukocytoclastic vasculitis. It most often takes place in late autumn to early spring, but could happen anytime. It's the most common vasculitis in children, and it has a slight male predominance. 90% of patients are children younger than 10 years old. It's milder in infants and children younger than 2 years old. And more severe and more likely to cause renal disease in adults. Actually, more severe in anyone over 10 years old is where we start to worry a little bit more. Okay, yeah, so not something to miss. So what's the pathophys for this one? Well, IgA immune complexes are deposited in small vessels. This causes petechiae and palpebra purpura. These complexes can occur in other small vessels of the intestinal wall causing hemorrhage or in the rhizal mesangium causing glomerulonephritis. 
Now, is there is there anything that triggers it, or does it just kind of spring up de novo? Well, sometimes it can be idiopathic, but we do think that this often comes from definitely triggers. Exposures to antigens from infection or medication or environmental factors may trigger this antibody and immune complex formation. Group A strep is the most famous one, and this is found in cultures of more than 30% of children that had HSP or IgA vasculitis. Other possible triggers are parvovirus, Bartonella, H. pylori, H. paraflu, Coxsackie adeno, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, mycoplasm, and EBV. Right, so any infection potentially triggers this. Oh, yes. Yeah. There's a lot of different, when we get a history, of trying to get a sense of, have these kids been sick recently? What symptoms have they had leading up prior to this? The classic triad for HSP or IgA vasculitis, of course, is the purpuric rash, joint pain, and abdominal pain. Do these usually present in a particular sequence? Actually, the onset of purpura, abdominal pain, and arthritis could start in any sequence, but usually starts with the purpura and then joint pain. Okay, that's interesting. Good to know. Now, can you walk us through each of the individual symptoms? I'd like to learn more about them. So, rash. All patients with IgA vasculitis develop a non-itchy rash that starts as an erythematous papules or urticarial wheels and then mature into crops of petechiae and purpura. This rash is most commonly in the dependent areas, the lower extremities, and the buttocks. Okay, how about the arthritis? This is a non-migratory arthritis, as I recall. Oh, yes. Ankles and knees are more common than small joints, and these patients will have swelling, warmth, and tenderness. My patient in particular had swollen red, tender joints, and could barely walk from the pain in his ankles and knees. These arthritic symptoms, the good thing is, are usually transient, and they can at times precede the rash in up to 15 to 25 percent of patients. Hmm. Okay, I didn't know that. Tell me more about the belly pain. What's going on there? I think the belly pain in children is always a tricky thing, because oftentimes they can't give us a great history, and we're trying not to scan them right away, like it seems to happen with adults. And this pain can really be severe and can mimic acute abdomen in terms of severity. And, you know, now when we're evaluating a child with what we think may be an acute abdomen, maybe we need to ask, hey, is there by chance a rash that you have as well? And this pain can be colicky and usually starts about one week after the rash. Vomiting and GI bleeding can occur in up to 30% of patients. In these cases, they can also have intussusception with a mural hematoma serving as the lead point. The part of this disease that I think we all worry about, even more so with the older patients, is the renal disease, because this can be pretty significant. Oh, yeah. Almost all of the morbidity comes from the renal disease. And this happens in 40 to 50% of patients. And the risk of renal issues is greatest in patients over 10 years old with persistent purpura, severe abdominal pain, or relapsing episodes. And this usually starts within a month of diagnosis, but will usually remit in most patients. But those with persistent proteinuria are at the highest risk of complications. Chris, how do we officially diagnose HSP? I mean, I think a lot of us would recognize that triad of symptoms, but do we need anything further before we tell our patients that's what they have? Well, so to diagnose, there's no definitive test to diagnose IgA vasculitis, but purpura, abdominal pain, and arthritis should always make you think of this right away. Their initial diagnostic criteria came out in 1990 from the American College of Rheumatology, and at this point, it was you had to have two of four things, and this was patients 20 or younger, palpable purpura without thrombocytopenia, bowel angina, and histiologic changes showing granulocytes in small walls of the arterioles and venules. 
1990, I didn't have a driver's license then. I was probably a few years away from having a driver's license, by which I mean, that was a while ago. Has there been any updates? Yeah, I mean, I think anything that happened while Tupac was still alive, <laughs> it's time for us to update it. <laughs> agreed, agreed. So in 2006, the International Consensus Conference adjusted the criteria. Now you have to have palpebra purpura in the presence of one or more of the following. So diffuse abdominal pain, number one. Number two, any biopsy showing predominant IgA deposition. Number three, arthritis. And number four, renal involvement. But this is definitely harder to diagnose when the rash isn't there at the start, right? When the rash is there, it's a lot easier for us to know this answer. But when it's not there, that's when it gets a little bit trickier for us. And that's sometimes the biopsy I mentioned when that comes into play. Right, right. Now, what about labs? Do they play any role in diagnosis? So blood work-wise, there's no definitive serologic tests for IgA vasculitis, but the goal is to exclude other diseases in our differential. So there's no particular test, but of course you need a CBC because we need to make sure our platelets are normal. We want to get a PTT and a PT, and we want to get a metabolic panel to look at the kidney function. We also want to get a UA to look for proteinuria. We want to look for red cell casts. We want to look for blood in the urine. And at times you can get IgA levels, but not everyone has to to make this diagnosis. One thing that is necessary is normal platelets. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned those platelets because the differential for HSP includes ITP and TTP and even DIC. So in addition to looking for normal platelets, is there anything else we might find on labs? So there's a lot of other things that we'll find. So leukocytosis can be there. You can get an elevated serum IgA if you've ordered it. Hematuria, proteinuria and the anti-streptolysin O antibodies, which I feel like they loved on med school questions back in the day. <laughs> they sure did, didn't they? Oh, yeah. The good thing is when you saw that, usually you knew what the answer was. So that was, that's one of those I liked. <laughs> that's right. Also, these patients can have normocytic anemia due to a GI bleed. The initial UA is often normal, but does need to be followed. So even if that first UA is normal, this does not mean we're done checking the kidney function because this may not happen right away. Complement levels are not necessarily needed, but they are often checked at times and they can be low. And biopsy, this is reserved for unusual presentations or possibly in adult populations. And the biopsies now are okay if they're either skin or renal in nature. Well, I don't know about you, but I always prefer to do a renal biopsy in my office over, over a skin one. <laughs> Anytime I, yeah. Any chance I have to do a renal biopsy, I'm all over it. All right, so we've gone through the laboratory evaluation. What about imaging studies? So doctors love to image, but this is a situation where no diagnostic imaging tests are routinely needed to be performed. I love diagnoses that don't need any radiation. Mm-hmm. But arteriography is required in some severe cases to localize hemorrhage and GI endoscopy at times for bleeding. Abdominal ultrasound is being used more and more to diagnose kids when they have a differential that could be an acute abdomen. Yep. True enough. True enough. Okay, management. How do we look after our patients who have HSP? You know what? I don't want anyone to have HSP or IgA vasculitis, but it's got two of my favorite things. We don't necessarily have to scan you, and we can do watchful waiting. I mean, these are like two of my favorites together. So watchful waiting versus expectant management versus let your body do its thing, whatever we want to call it nowadays. Okay, nice. That's good to know. It resolves spontaneously in 94% of children and 89% of adults. Acetaminophen and NSAIDs can be used to treat arthritis, although NSAIDs need to be followed closely to make sure they do not aggravate a GI symptoms 
and should be avoided if there's significant renal involvement or a GI bleed, and rest and elevation of legs. Okay, that sounds easy. Sarcasm alert. Because if there's one thing about an eight-year-old, it's so easy to get them to sit still and to put their feet up. (laughs) What about kids who just plain look sick? What would trigger a hospitalization? So reasons to be hospitalized if there's significant dehydration, any signs of hemorrhage, or for pain control. If there is any significant renal involvement, nephrology should be involved as well. One of the treatments also used is steroids. And so oral prednisone at 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram for two weeks has been shown to treat moderate to severe abdominal pain and joint symptoms. Prednisone has not been really shown to prevent renal disease, but it can be helpful in treating it once it's started. And so my patient actually did get one dose of prednisone and then was discharged home on a naproxen. And with real severe disease, this can be treated with high-dose steroids, immunoglobulins, and plasmapheresis. So in rare cases, it can be quite dangerous. And at those times, obviously, we will have our renal friends help us out. Right. Absolutely. Now, how is your patient doing? Is he okay? He did quite well and had quite a relief in his joint pain just from one dose of steroids in the hospital. I got to see him just a few days later. And he was walking much better. His joints looked better. And what the plan was, and this is what the recommendations are, is that we should do routine blood pressure measurements and urine analysis. And we did it twice a week for a month. And then we did it once a week for another month. And then we started doing it every two weeks for a total of six months because these renal manifestations do not always present right away. Hmm. Okay. And we actually saw a lot of each other over these few months. And I'm pleased to say at this point, he has no long-term sequelae. Oh, that's wonderful news. Good to, good to hear that about him. Recap. Okay, now it's time to summarize the case, Chris. But something seems to be missing from this. And I know what it is. You haven't sung yet. <laughs> you usually have a little bit of a catchy tune with your pieces. Are you going to sing the summary? Is that the plan? No, Heidi, no singing today. I'm going to wrap it. <laughs> even better, even better. Are you ready for my flow? Go. Don't fear, prepare for sick child. Zebras exist in your office, not only the wild. Think kids with belly pain, arthritis, purpura. Get a history, normal platelets, diagnose, time to cura. Belly hurting, rash on butt, even arthritis. Name has changed from HSP to IgA vasculitis. And said steroids, most treatment is watchful waiting. Unless it's affecting your kidneys. Hope you're concentrating. This should make you more prepared for this child next time. Keep learning. I'm done rapping. Enjoy right on Prime. Prime. Rural Medicine Talks. Greetings all and welcome to the Rural Medicine segment for this month. And I'm joined once again by Dr. Adrian Salim, who I hear has got a case for us. You've heard right, Cardi. Well, first off, I should give a shout out to Zach Weinstein, the pride of Queens, New York, whose case this was. I was sort of peripherally involved in this. So this case takes place in Chisassabee. I'm working in our ED there. And as most of these cases start, one of the nurses comes over and asks me to see a patient that just came in with EMS. And she tells me this patient's breathing a bit fast. She thinks it might be CHF. So I go see the patient. She's 65 years old. She's known for diabetes and chronic kidney disease from diabetic nephropathy. And her kidney function is really, it's, it's not great and it's been worsening. So what's her creatinine at baseline so we have a sense of where we're starting? So it was around 250. And in American units, that's 2.8. And it's been worsening over the last year or so. Turns out I've uh, finally found uh, 
the meaning of life for me anyway, and that is to be on the rural medicine pieces and convert from the US to European and the rest of the world. So creatinine 2.8 is in milligrams per deciliter, and that equals about 250 micromoles per liter. Either way, it's not good. Okay, so that's pretty significant kidney disease. And what was she actually presenting with this time? She just felt kind of generally weak and tired and unwell. She was also feeling a bit short of breath for the last week. And then uh, she said she's been maybe having a little bit more peripheral edema, you know, in the last month or so. But there's really nothing else aside from that. So like no orthopnea, no cough, no fever. Although she did say she had some chills like the day before. Decreased PO intake. So she is making urine, but just not as much as usual. And then she thinks she gained some weight as well. So she thinks it's around two kilos, around four pounds or so. And then in terms of her vitals, her respiratory rate is is fast. She's breathing around 28, these sort of shallow, fast breaths. And she was hypertensive as well. Her systolic uh, was around 160 or so. But otherwise, her vitals were okay. Her SAT was 96% on room air. And uh, the exam was not overly impressive. She did have some peripheral edema, um, like we mentioned, but her lungs were, were clear and everything else was was fairly unremarkable. But then her labs start coming back. So her creatinine is now 700 or so. So that's 7.9 in American units. Um, her potassium is 7.6. She's acidemic. She's got a pH of 7.15. Her bicarb is 10. But she is trying to compensate respiratory-wise, so her PCO2 is 25. Thankfully, her lactate, her sugars were okay. We get a chest x-ray. I really don't see much in terms of pulmonary edema. And then her EKG shows that her QRS is widened compared to her prior. It almost looks like a left bundle branch block pattern. And again, that's that's new. And I should also mention at this point, I go back, I do a bedside ultrasound. I look at her IVC, it looks pretty full. I look at her kidneys, I don't see any signs of hydronephrosis. Um, I have a quick look at her pericardium, I don't see a pericardial effusion. And then I swing down to her bladder and it's pretty empty. I mean, there's a little bit of urine, maybe like 100 mils, but she's definitely not in retention. Okay, well, that's one good thing, I guess. So luckily, she's pretty stable right now, but obviously that could change. So what was your plan? So this patient needs dialysis. Call over to nephrology at a referral center and they agree, send her down and, and they'll get her started on hemodialysis. So that's the easy part. And even though there is a dialysis unit in Chisaspe, we can't initiate it there. That has to be done at a tertiary care center. So what that means is it's going to be at least six hours, possibly more, until we can get this patient down to where she needs to be. And that's what I wanted to go over here was an approach on how to temporize these patients who need dialysis until we can get them to their definitive care. But I think this is a relevant topic to a lot of us who work in smaller or even larger community EDs. Yeah, I think this is a really important topic. So why don't we start off by talking about dialysis indications? I like using the A-E-I-O-U mnemonic. Do you know what I'm talking about, Cardi? A-E-I-O-U. I do. These are the vowels. Yeah. Spell it out for me. So the A stands for acidemia, so a pH of less than 7.1 despite medical management. The E stands for electrolytes, so meaning hyperkalemia, again, despite medical management. The I is for ingestions like lithium or toxic alcohols. The O is for overload, meaning refractory volume overload, especially pulmonary edema. And then the U is uremia, so pericarditis, bleeding, and uremic encephalopathy. A-E-I-O-U. Got it. These are the... Now, I actually use these indications for dialysis as a way to remember the different aspects in management of these patients. So I think about hyperkalemia, I think about volume status, acidosis, and uremia, specifically uremic pericarditis. So let's start with hyperkalemia. Now, hyperkalemia is the most common and, and I think the most nuanced part of the management here, especially if there's going to be a long delay in transport. Now, in this case, her potassium initially was 7.6, and she had EKG changes uh, consistent with hyperkalemia. So she's getting everything, right? We're throwing the kitchen sink at her. So she got calcium gluconate. We shifted her with insulin and uh, D50. And then she got some Vensalin nebs as well. So with that treatment, her EKG normalizes. 
We get a repeat K in about an hour, and it's down to 5.7. So you did get her potassium down to a more reasonable level, but you still probably have probably around five hours, like in the best case scenario, until she arrives at the dialysis center. And uh, what, so what was your thought on how to actually manage that time delay? I mean, I think that's the main question. So some interesting facts here that I didn't really appreciate until this case, but calcium's effect only lasts for about 30 to 60 minutes, and insulin's effect lasts for about four hours or so. So there's a chance that that K may creep back up again. So what we figured is that we would get a repeat potassium about an hour before the scheduled departure. And this way, it'll be close enough to the flight, but also enough time to deal with the results if we have to. And so we do that, and her repeat potassium comes back at 5.8. Okay, but what was your plan for the flight, given that her potassium could still creep up in that interval where you won't be able to see her? There's not, as you know, I mean, there's not a whole lot you can do on a flight. What we would do is continue giving her Ventolin nebs on the plane. The flight nurse would keep an eye on the monitor. And if that QRS complex starts to widen or we lose P waves, then he would give calcium and possibly insulin as well. And then the other thing that was really easy to forget is that we really needed to continue monitoring the patient's glucose while they were on the plane. Okay, so what was the next step in your management? Yeah, so now my attention turns to her volume status. So she appeared to be volume overloaded, right? Like she had peripheral edema. Her IVC looked pretty full when I looked at it with the ultrasound. And if I could actually find her JVP, I'm sure it would be elevated as well. However, she thankfully didn't have much, if any, pulmonary edema. And the nurses had placed a Foley. She was making a little bit of urine. I mean, not a, not a lot, but there was some urine that she was making. Okay, so what about giving furosemide then? What was your thought for on that? She was already on furosemide at home. But I spoke to the nephrologist, and they thought we should just give her a dose of Ivulasix, and, you know, there's really little downsides to it. So, so we gave it. Now, luckily, it sounded like she wasn't in any respiratory distress and didn't have significant pulmonary edema. But what was your plan if that developed while you were with her or in the plane? Thankfully, we didn't have to go there. But if we needed to, we could have done the usual kind of pulmonary edema treatment. So BiPAP, a nitro infusion if she was uh, hypertensive. Again, these are temporizing measures until we can get her to dialysis and take off some of that fluid. And then another thing we could have done is a phlebotomy. Now, I've never done this, and I really, I'm, I'm not really sure how to do it. Do you have any thoughts on how to do this? I've never done this, but I did a bit of research into it. And so what you do is you take a 16 to 18 gauge needle, and you allow around 400 to 500 cc's of blood to be drained by gravity. Now, this usually takes about five to 10 minutes from start to finish. So obviously, it's not a long procedure. The nurses are usually fairly comfortable with, you know, accessing veins in this way. And so we can get some fluid off pretty quickly. And how it works is, well, it's pretty straightforward. You're literally pulling volume off of the patient. Of course, it doesn't work to correct hyperkalemia or any of the other metabolic issues, but at least this way you can maybe get some of the volume off. So maybe not so much for this patient because she wasn't uh, in acute pulmonary edema, but if someone's really having a hard time breathing, this can, uh, can help them a little bit. Is there any evidence for this? Well, it's not exactly sort of recent evidence because I think we're obviously trying to get away from this as a treatment, but it is still there in your, to have in your back pocket. And so one 1995 study looked at the response to phlebotomy in patients who were already dialyzed and who presented to the emergency room with acute dyspnea and two or more signs of acute pulmonary edema, and they had to have failed nitrate therapy already. 80% of patients actually improved markedly and required neither intubation nor emergency dialysis after they had therapeutic phlebotomy. And in almost 40% of cases, the patient's next dialysis treatment was deferred for almost 10 hours. So in places like Chisassibi, that time save can be a huge deal. And the side effects are really comparable to the rate of side effects from emergency hemodialysis treatments in these patients. And as long as no more than 500 cc's of blood were withdrawn, the patients did well. And that's a little caveat that we could mention, too, is that, you know, if your patient is not in sort of florid pulmonary edema, but you're worried about the amount of time that it's going to take to transfer your patient, you can always take off less than 500 mm -hmm. cc's, but really the mm -hmm. max is 500 cc's. Now, I should mention if the opposite 
happens, if the patient is volume depleted, then you can give fluid boluses as well, right? Now, in a situation where the patient has significant kidney disease, it's probably best to go with, you know, small boluses and then just reassess frequently. Okay, next up, acidosis. Now, in this case, her pH was certainly not great, right? It was 7.15, but it really wasn't awful as well. And she was compensating as best as she could. Now, my worry was that if she were to tire out respiratory-wise on the transfer, then her pH would plummet, and then it could lead to all sorts of badness and cardiovascular collapse. So I'm wondering about starting her on a bicarb infusion. And when you look up the indications for starting bicarb, it's usually a pH of less than 7.1 and evidence of cardiovascular compromise, although I'm sure this is not a cut and dry answer. Now, the main reason why we just wouldn't give bicarb, you know, willy-nilly, as I'm sure you would say, Cardi. Yeah, you're rubbing (laughs) off on me a little bit. The reason you wouldn't just give this to anyone is that you're giving an already volume overloaded patient some extra fluid and a lot of salt, which can make their volume status even worse. So when I spoke to nephrology, and they felt that the risk of volume overload in this patient was greater than the risk of worsening acidosis, and so they thought we should probably hold off on bicarbons, so we did. All right, so next on the list to consider is uremia, and specifically uremic pericarditis. So this is going to present similarly to other types of pericarditis, right? There's going to be pleuritic chest pain, there may be a rub present, if you can hear that. There may be the usual EKG findings as well. And the treatment is dialysis. That's, that's how this is treated, not NSAIDs, not colchicine, it's dialysis. But why we really need to consider it is that patients can develop pericardial fusions and they can develop tamponade. Now, it's probably a good idea to have a quick peek at their pericardium with the ultrasound to make sure they don't have a pericardial effusion or any signs of tamponade before you get them on an ambulance or a plane or a helicopter. And in this case, thankfully, the patient did not have any chest pain. She had no findings of pericarditis on her EKG. And then when I had a look at her, uh, her pericardium on the ultrasound, there was no pericardial effusion. Summary. All right, well, we've covered a ton of ground here, so let's try and put all this together. You have a patient that needs dialysis. You can't provide dialysis in your center. So what's your quick approach to managing them until they get to where they need to go? All right, so first off, hyperkalemia. Remember, calcium's effects only last for about 30 to 60 minutes and insulin for about four hours, so they may need to be redosed. Next, assess their volume status. If they are overall volume depleted, you can give small boluses and then reassess them frequently. If they're volume overloaded, you can consider furosemide. And then if they're in pulmonary edema, you can consider the usual treatments with uh, non-invasive ventilation and nitro. And then you can also consider a phlebotomy. Uh, have that in your back pocket if you really have to get some fluid off and fast. Now for severe acidosis, consider a bicarb infusion, but talk with your local nephrology team for, for some guidance about that. And don't forget to look at their pericardium since you don't want to miss a big pericardial fusion and impending tamponade. Remember, bedside ultrasound is your friend. Look at the IVC, look at the pericardium, look at the kidneys for any signs of hydronephrosis, and then finally look at the bladder for uh, any signs of retention. All right, well, I think that's a great overview, but now I really want to know what actually happened to your patient. It was kind of boring, actually, and and I guess in our business, boring is good. She got down to the referral center, no problems. Uh, She didn't need any further calcium or insulin or anything. So she was down there for a few weeks while they stabilized her on hemodialysis, and then she came back up to Kishasabi a few weeks later, and she is uh, now one of the dialysis patients there. That's a great story. Thank you so much and so many key learning points. Thanks, Adrian, and um, hope to talk to you soon. These cool letters are the vowels. Anemia, electrolyte, ingestion, overload. A-E-I-O-U. And uremia, listen to the sounds. Oh, yeah. That's right. Chicka, 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 chicka. Primary Care Medical Abstracts. With Ken and Steve. Doobie doobie. 
All right, here we go on the November 2021 PCMA edition. This is following up on the uber scary October edition. But we're back, ready to do November, and I'm here with my fabulous co-host, Steve Brown. How you doing? I'm doing great. Super happy to be here again. I'm looking forward to this, Ken. Yeah, we've got some stuff on pre-diabetes. We're going to be sprinting, some delirium, some screening, some bleeding. I mean, we got something in here for everybody. And there might even be some rants mixed in. So look out. This is going to get ugly. Thanks for the trigger warning. (laughs) I think I know which paper... All right, so I've got the first one here. Paper one. Abstract number one. Risk of progression to diabetes among older adults with pre-diabetes. And this is in JAMA Internal Medicine 2021. And you know, every time I see a paper that says something about pre-diabetes, my monosynaptic reflex is, oh, I'm pre-tachycardic. Should I be on a beta blocker, Steve? So pre-diabetes, it's debated. There's different definitions kicking around, different lab parameters that people use. And the purpose of this study was to compare different definitions of prediabetes and the risk in older community-dwelling adults. It was a prospective cohort study where they mined a previous study from the atherosclerosis risk and community study, and they looked at the patients that didn't have diabetes but they had lab values on them. And so they teased out and picked out that subgroup of pre-diabetics. And they defined that as having a glycosylated hemoglobin or a hemoglobin A1c, 5.7% to 6.4%, or impaired fasting glucose level of 100 to 125. And if you had either one of those or both, you were flagged as pre-diabetic. Now, the outcome was the incidence of diabetes. This is a bit interesting, though. It was either physician diagnosed, so there was a diagnostic code for diabetes. They noticed that someone had started a glucose-lowering medication, which may or may not mean they actually had diabetes. And then they looked at some lab markers like the hemoglobin A1c popping up above 6.5 or the fasting glucose rising above 126. So what they got in this study was 3,400 people. The mean age was in the mid-70s and 60% were female. The mean follow-up was just over six years. Now, there was 125 total incidents of diabetes. That's out of 3,400 people. But they had three times as many, 434 deaths. So it gets a bit complicated, and it took me time to put this together, Steve. So I'm going to put a table in the show notes to go through all of that. But the bottom line here is that more patients had a regression to normal glycemia. So more people who were flagged as pre-diabetic, when they followed them up, yeah, they're normal glycemic, or they died. Okay, so those were the two outcomes. (laughs) Not that they went on to become diabetics really that often. Now, the study's limited, of course, because it's a subgroup analysis of an observational study. And I'm always a bit skeptical when we're looking at expanding sort of therapies to pre-disease states, But when I was reading this study, I always like to read around studies. And so, of course, I went to this thing called the internet. You can find anything out there, Steve. (laughs) And again, the internet, it's a series of tubes. And I did a little Googling. And you know what came up almost number one? I think it was number one. It's this little article, this little editorial by some guy named S.R. Brown. 
in AFP 2019. So I'm going to back away because someone's already published on this. Go ahead, my colleague. Well, the funniest thing about that article is I was asked to write a con position to we should start medication for so-called prediabetes. And I asked the editor if I was allowed to say that prediabetes is not a thing. Like, we shouldn't even use the term prediabetes. It's made up. And they said, no, I'm sorry. It's widely accepted now. Even the CDC has accepted the concept of prediabetes. So, Ken, we are losing the battle against these terms for sure. And my favorite thing from this article, do you think I should tell my patients who come to me and they're like, I'm really worried, doctor, I have prediabetes. Do you think I should say, you're more likely to die than you are to get diabetes? <laughs> Three times, 300% Yeah, was that increases. your take home? <laughs> you're fine, sir. You're more likely to die than you are to get diabetes. The definition of diabetes comes from the American Diabetes Association, and it's just an arbitrary number, 6.5 hemoglobin A1c. Probably if you're 7 or 7.5, you're fine. You're not going to have any long-term complications. So the fact that we have a made-up threshold for diabetes, and now we're going to make up an even lower threshold for prediabetes is ridiculous. But this is very reassuring that we don't have to worry about our patients with abnormal glucose that have not yet met the criteria for diabetes. We don't have to stress, especially if they're 75 years old. So just to circle back to my intro then, you're saying I don't have to worry about being pre-diabetic or pre-tachycardic. Right, or we're all pre-dead. Pre-dead. <laughs> Bottom line. If you make it to your 70s without developing diabetes, it's unlikely you'll be diagnosed with diabetes, even if you get labeled pre-diabetic. Paper two. Abstract number two, Ken, I bet you thought that we were done with the sprint trial forever. I thought it was a marathon, not a sprint, but okay. <laughs> yes, it turns out the sprint trial is indeed a marathon. Is a marathon. <laughs> <laughs> so we have what these authors swear is the, quote, final report of a trial of intensive versus standard blood pressure control, New England Journal of Medicine, May 2021, from, of course, the Sprint Research Group. Sure, the final. That's like the who telling us this will be their final farewell tour. I went to all three of them, I think. <laughs> right, exactly. And you mean who the rock band, not who the World Health Organization. <laughs> yes, the rock band who, but they had so many farewell tours. I mean, <laughs> okay, sprint trial, this is it. It's over. Sprint is done. So what does Sprint Trial say in their allegedly farewell tour? Well, just a little background. We know that blood pressure goals are hotly debated, and even more so since the Sprint Trial came out in 2015, which Ken's favorite was stopped early because a goal of 120 systolic compared to 140 systolic improved clinical outcomes. This study is a follow-up reporting data for another year after the trial was closed. And spoiler alert, there is no change in the conclusions, unsurprisingly. It's super important to understand the patient population in the SPRINT trial. These are patients over 50 who have at least one cardiac risk factor. They're hypertensive, they could have CV disease, renal insufficiency, Framingham risk over 15% or age over 75, and this does not apply to patients with diabetes. 
They randomly assigned over 9,000 patients to intensive treatment target, which was systolic blood pressure less than 120, or a standard treatment target, which was less than 140. And the primary outcome, we're pushing all your buttons here, Ken, again, was a composite myocardial infarction, other acute coronary syndrome, stroke, acute decompensate heart failure, or death from cardiovascular causes. Oh, oh, I'm trying to keep my zen for the rest of this episode. You have to wait until I'm done describing the details before you can rant. So this was an observational post-intervention period. Patients were returned to their usual physician. There was no difference in outcomes. The blood pressure crept up and med use decreased in the intensive intervention group once you stopped the study. And remember from SPRINT, the main difference was that people in the more aggressive goal were on three medicines for the most part, and patients in the less aggressive goal were on two medicines. So adding the post-intervention time to the original data, three years of follow-up, primary outcome composite, 1.77 versus 2.4% per year, number needed to treat 159 per year. All-cause mortality, pretty impressive, 1.06 versus 1.41, number needed to treat 286 per year. But of course, what we've been talking about and harping on on PCMA since 2015 now is the serious adverse events hypotension, electrolyte abnormalities, acute kidney injury or failure, syncope, significantly more frequent in the intensive treatment group. Serious hypotension, number needed to harm 200 per year. Serious syncope, this includes ED visits, number needed to harm 333 per year. Serious acute kidney injury, number needed to harm 200 per year. Sodium less than 130, number needed to harm 167 per year. And I love our colleagues over on EMA. If you listen to them talking about this, they're just like, you're going to be seeing a lot more people in the ED with complications of too much blood pressure medicine. Yeah, the pendulum's going to swing from everybody running in because they took their blood pressure and it was high, that, oh my goodness, they took it again and it was higher, and then they took it again and it was even higher. Now we're going to get all these syncopizers and hypotension, and I know that you say the number needed to harm, the NNH, is in the hundreds, like, you know, 200, 300, but you got to remember, that's per year, and these people will be taking this medicine for years, these two or three medicines, and there are millions of Americans that have hypertension. So it's not going to be an insignificant number. Yeah, so this so-called final publication, it doesn't really add much to the findings of the SPRINT trial. And I think in the right patient with shared decision-making, a goal of 120 systolic may be reasonable. Remember, for high-risk patients, there may be some mortality benefit, but the trade-off has to be understood, which are the harms. Bottom line. The SPRINT trial final results show improved mortality with increased risks. Paper three. Abstract number three is the diagnostic accuracy of the 4AT for delirium detection in older adults, a systematic review and meta-analysis in the Journal of Age and Aging, November 2020. And my inner nerd just jumped at this title. I mean, I saw the 4AT and I thought, does that mean it's two ATATs? Those all-terrain armored transport vehicles from Star Wars? Oh, that would be so cool. But it's not. 4AT means something different. 
So this is a quick, and what they mean by quick is less than two minutes and easy to use clinical decision tool that was developed about 10 years ago, and it's used internationally. I wasn't familiar with it. I hadn't been using this. Have you used it, Steve? No, I haven't. So I guess international means outside of North America. Right. That's international. And it's to assess patients with delirium. And it has four domains. Alertness, that's one of the A's. AMT4, which stands for orientation to person, place, date of birth, and year. Attention. And then the fourth A is acute change or fluctuating course. Now, they give a score between 0 and 12, with greater than 3 being a possible delirium plus or minus cognitive impairment. So the objective of this systematic review was to look at the diagnostic accuracy of this tool. So the authors, they registered their study protocol with Prospero. They did an extensive search and graded the methodological quality of the studies. They included observational studies of patients 65 years of age and older, used the 4AT, and had a standardized or validated tool for delirium for comparison. Now, studies were included if patients had delirium tremors, so no patients with DTs in here. They had 17 trials with 3,700 patients from 11 countries, so it was international, in a variety of clinical settings. So this is on the acute medicine floor, the surgery floor, in care homes, and in the emergency department, with three of the trials being done on stroke patients. The overall prevalence of delirium was almost one quarter, 24%. So that's a high prevalence rate. The quality of the studies were moderate to good, and sensitivity and specificity were both 88%. So this looks like a reasonable tool to use based on the simplicity and the speed of evaluation. The diagnostic characteristics are good for both sensitivity and specificity, but there can be many biases in diagnostic studies. And one of the ones I was concerned about in this study was, what's the gold standard? And is that gold standard a good enough test? So there's something called the copper standard bias or the imperfect gold standard bias. And you can read more about that in that great paper in Academic Emergency Medicine 2013. So there could be that bias. The included studies were all observational. Stronger evidence for this AT4 tool would come from a clustered randomized control trial. You could ask if using this tool to detect delirium in a clustered randomized fashion, so you didn't poison the well at each site, right? So you could have one site doing the 4AT and one site doing usual care, and then see if it detects delirium and improves a patient-oriented outcome like Did less people fall? Did less people get injured? Was there less mortality? Those types of things. Yeah, my exact note was about the gold standard. And I think especially in this case, if you looked at the standard diagnostic criteria, there'd be a lot of overlap. So in some ways, this is just kind of like shortening or maybe pulling out the best part of the gold standard. So you would expect it to perform pretty well if you were comparing it almost to itself for the gold standard. And I think for me... I think you know when your patient is altered. I think what's hard is distinguishing dementia from delirium, and that's the difference. That's really what I need to know, and that's not really discussed here. Bottom line. The AT4 looks like an interesting tool that could be used to detect delirium, but we need better evidence that it provides a patient-oriented benefit before making it a standardized part of our care. Paper 4. Paper number four is a very important paper that talks about ovarian cancer screening, ovarian cancer population screening and mortality after long-term follow-up in the UK Collaborative Trial of Ovarian Cancer Screening, or UCTOX, 
a randomized control trial. It's published in Lancet 2021. We would love to have a reliable screening test for ovarian cancer. 58% of patients are diagnosed at an advanced stage, and five-year survival is 27% for stage three and only 13% for stage four, while stage one ovarian cancer has greater than a 90% survival rate. We've had multiple screening trials that have included CA-125 and transvaginal ultrasound, including the USPLCO trial, and that's shown screening to not be effective. After 11 years, the UCTOC showed no all-cause or disease-specific mortality benefit. This is a follow-up publication from this trial with a median of 16 years of data. So kudos to these authors for following these patients and really reliably following up with them for 16 years. These are randomized postmenopausal women aged 50 to 74 from 13 centers in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. They're randomized to annual, what they call multimodal screening, which is CA-125 plus a risk calculator that sort of tells you, is it going up? Is it going down? What is the CA-125? And transvaginal ultrasound, if indicated, that's compared to just annual transvaginal ultrasound or no screening. That was from 2001 to 2005, they were enrolled, over 200,000 women randomly assigned. And the primary outcome was death due to ovarian or tubal cancer. They did intention to treat analysis. The investigators and participants were aware of the screening, but the outcome review committee was masked to which group they were randomized to. So what are the results? At a median of 16 years of follow-up, over 2,000 women were diagnosed with tubal or ovarian cancer, 1% in each of the three groups. No difference. There was an increase in stage one diagnosis and a decrease in stage four incidence in the multimodal screening group. There was an increased incidence of stage one or two disease and a decreased incidence of stage three or four disease. So you, this would be promising. This sounds exciting, but... 1,200 women died of the disease, 0.6% in each group. No reduction in ovarian and tubal cancer mortality in each of the screening groups compared to no screening. So the authors conclude general population screening cannot be recommended. And they note that just because you can prove you can increase detection in stage one or stage two, it doesn't necessarily improve mortality. So this study, even with a fancy calculator, confirms the USPSTF-D recommendation, don't do it for ovarian cancer screening. Steve, when I was looking through this article, I couldn't find the all-cause mortality. Were you able to find all-cause mortality in the manuscript or the supplemental material? I did not. Yeah, I dug into the supplemental material because that's always one of the concerns I have. It it may come out as a wash with the ovarian-related or tubal deaths, but what happens if all-cause mortality goes up. And so I really like to see both of those things reported, and I dug into it. I couldn't find it. So it sounds like you couldn't find it either. But like you said, the task force gives it a D, don't do recommendation. And that agrees with ACOG, AAFP, American Cancer Society, and the American College of Radiology. So I think everybody's pretty much on board on this one. Yeah, and one of the reasons why I think your question about all-cause mortality is really good is for some cancers, the follow-up test is not particularly invasive. In this case, it's an abdominal surgery. If you have a mass that the transvaginal ultrasound shows, the next step is abdominal surgery. And one time when I looked at this, basically you have 20 abdominal surgeries for every cancer detected. 
And that's not even saying that you're going to improve mortality. So I think that's a really important question. Bottom line. Routine screening for ovarian cancer does not improve cancer-specific mortality. Paper five. Abstract number five has to be one of my favorite papers this month. Abstract number five is rates of rebleeding, thrombosis, and mortality associated with the resumption of anticoagulant therapy after anticoagulant-related bleeding. And this was in the Canadian Medical Association Journal 2021. So the objective of this study was to determine the outcome of patients who had restarted an oral anticoagulant after they had bled and compared those to those who hadn't restarted. It's an observational study from my home province of Ontario, and they looked at patients 66 years of age and older. And I know how they did that is because we have anybody over 65 is automatically put into this database of pharmaceuticals as well, so they can follow these people for their prescriptions. And of course, with the overall healthcare system, we can follow them for their diagnostic codes and all of their healthcare visits. So they looked at those people over 66 years of age who were admitted So these are not insignificant bleeds, admitted for a bleed, GI, intracranial, or GU, or even respiratory, and they had a prescription for warfarin or one of the DOACs. Now, patients who died during the index admission had a bleed within the last five years, so they are at higher risk, or palliative patients weren't included. So we're not looking at those types of people. They were specifically looking at hadn't had a bleed within five years, didn't die right away, and weren't palliative. And the primary outcomes were bleeding, thrombosis, and all-cause mortality. In the study, they found about 6,800 patients, just about two-thirds had GI bleeds. So that was the main source. Median age was 82, so these are older individuals. 57% were on warfarin. I bet you that number's changing. And the indication for the anticoagulation was the vast majority was for AFib. 70% were resumed with their anticoagulation within one year, and most of them within about six weeks for the median time. Now, when they looked at the results, there was a reduced rate of thrombosis if you restarted the anticoagulant. So that makes sense. You're less likely to have a thrombosis. But mortality, the hazard ratio for mortality was also statistically lower. But if you're starting an oral anticoagulant, you're going to see an increased rate of bleeding and that hazard ratio was up. So they adjusted their results for covariance, but always there could be these unmeasured confounders responsible for the observed data. Two specific ones I was concerned about was the use of over-the-counter NSAIDs and ASA products, and we're usually pretty good. Most patients tell me, oh yeah, no, I can't take an ibuprofen, or I can't take, and I'm already on something. So they're pretty good, but they didn't control for that. And it's also possible that the healthier people were restarted on oral anticoagulants, while those that were sicker were not restarted. And sometimes we don't have definitive data. It's just clinical gestalt that I'm going to start that person on their oral anticoagulants again, or geez, I really think there may be some fragility there and we shouldn't. The data only applies to those patients over the age of 65. So we shouldn't over-interpret this to younger patients. And what we really need to answer this question is a properly designed randomized control trial. Yeah. Do you think you could do one? Do you think it would be ethical? Or do you think there's already evidence that's pretty convincing that someone should be on an anticoagulant? 
Well, I guess, you know, you can't do it ethically unless there's equipoise. And so I think you'd have to gather some thrombosis experts, some primary care experts, patient groups, because, you know, we can look at hazard ratios and say, well, you know, the hazard ratio of the mortality was 0.54, but your increased red eye bleeding was 1.88. And these are serious bleeds. So I always like to think in that trifecta with the evidence-based medicine model. I mean, we've got the literature. Now we need to bring in the clinicians with their clinical judgment and then engage with the patients and say, hey, what do you think is reasonable? And see if there is equipoise to move forward ethically. And I think that's a question that could be asked. I don't know what the answer would be. Yeah, I wonder if it would almost be like delayed versus immediate, you know, sort of like within 30-day restart or six-month restart. Sure, sure. Yeah, you might be able to modify it that way. Yeah, this is really one of the proverbial rock and a hard places in medicine. It is. It kind of reminds me of diuretics for people with kidney disease and heart failure. And did you see that thing where like, a cardiologist got arrested for assaulting a nephrologist and they didn't say, but it was an argument over a medicine. <laughs> I think it was over who, you know, with a diuretic right, or something right. like that. But you can imagine How sort dare of like you? the gastroenterologist and the primary care doctor, the cardiologist being like, we got to restart this. And the gastroenterologist is like, no, you can't restart this. So it's definitely a rock and a hard place. But I do think that at some point, the evidence would favor restarting the anticoagulant. But I don't know exactly when that time is. Yeah. And, and the thing is, you know, when you do restart it, right, everybody has different risk tolerances. And would you rather risk, because the vast majority of that were AFib, you know, what is their one year, you know, if you do a CHAD-VASC2 score, you know, is their risk 3% or are they, you know, 15% right. for in the next year? And then how bad was the bleed? And so there's nuance to this and clinical judgment has to come into it. Wait, are you saying it's a shared decision? I am. Fancy that. Bottom line. Restarting oral anticoagulants after a bleed requiring admission to hospital is an excellent opportunity for shared decision making. Paper six. Abstract number six. Tympanostomy tubes or medical management for recurrent acute otitis media in the New England Journal, May 2021. And this is from the gurus of tympanostomy tube research at the University of Pittsburgh. So we know that recurrent otitis media is one of the most common indications for the insertion of tympanostomy tubes. We've talked on PCMA before about tympanostomy tubes for otitis media with effusion. And actually, there's a Cochrane review that shows no improvement in language development or cognition when using tubes for otitis media with effusion. And if you're talking about persistent otitis media with hearing difficulties or symptoms, guidelines suggest tube insertion for persistent otitis media with effusion with hearing difficulties or symptoms that are potentially attributed to otitis media with effusion like poor school performance. If you look at recurrent otitis media, current guidelines suggest tubes may be given if the patient has three times in six months or four times in one year. So these authors were funded by the NIH, the epicenter of tympanostomy tube research at the University of Pittsburgh. It wasn't funded by big tube? It's a series of tubes. 
They randomly assigned 250 children, six to 35 months old, who had at least three episodes of acute otitis media within six months, or at least four episodes within 12 months. So this is concordant with the guidelines. And they randomized them to either have tympanostomy tube placement or receive medical management involving episodic antimicrobial treatment. The primary outcome was mean number of episodes of acute otitis media per child per year during a two-year period. And it was power to find about a half episode difference over two years. So with only 200 patients, you might wonder about the power. And so that was about what they could distinguish. So what did this show? The rate of episodes of acute otitis media per child per year during a two-year period was about 1.5 in both groups. And this is by the intention to treat analysis. There was substantial crossover. So they did a per protocol analysis, which also showed no difference. And actually, many patients that were assigned to medical management ended up having tympanostomy tubes placed either because the parent asked for it or because the patients met what they called a failure threshold with recurrent otitis media. The harms, if you had tubes, you had about five more days of ear drainage, otorrhea in those five years. And then they had a bunch of other secondary outcomes that were sort of mixed between the groups. So while these authors conclude there's no difference with medical management, it seems a little more complicated than that to me. Many patients crossed over, had tubes placed in the medical management group. And so I think the take home is once your patient reaches that threshold, say four otitis media infections in a year, medical management is an option even though the parents or the otolaryngologist may be more aggressive at that point. I think this paper demonstrates the problem of trying to find a signal in noise because the fuzzy inclusion criteria of a clinical diagnosis, because they retrospectively looked and identified these children that had these episodes of acute otitis media. And you know that there's some diagnostic uncertainty with, oh, that eardrum looks a little red. I know that they did some other things, but still there is some fuzziness with the inclusion criteria because it's a clinical diagnosis. And then, like you said, lots of patients crossed groups. And I mean, it it was in the double digits with regards to percentages, you know, who got the tubes and who didn't get the tubes and switching teams. And then you look at the outcome assessment. Well, again, you're looking for acute otitis media. And so you've got fuzzy clinical diagnosis at the end of it. And so I think there's so much noise going on that I think it was unlikely that they were going to find a statistical difference. Now, this isn't proof that tubes don't work, but it certainly doesn't support the claim that tubes do work. And we know that the burden of proof is on those claiming superiority in this case. And so I will just accept the null hypothesis until there is sufficient evidence to reject the null. Bottom line. Medical management is a reasonable option compared to tympanostomy tubes for children with recurrent otitis media. Paper 7. Abstract number 7 is epidural corticosteroid injections for sciatica, an abridged Cochrane systematic review and meta-analysis published in Spine 2020. Steve, do you think this is the one I'm going to rant on? (laughs) There is a high pretest probability of a rant on this paper. (laughs) All right. Let's get into it. Ooh, this is going to be good. Sciatic back pain, it can be a challenge, of course, to treat effectively. And there's been many pharmacological and non-pharmacological treatments with limited success. 
The objective of this systematic review was to investigate the efficacy and safety of epidural corticosteroids injections in patients with sciatica compared with placebo injections in reducing leg pain and disability. Now, this is an update from a 2012 review published by Pinto et al. in Annals of Internal Medicine on this topic. The authors did an extensive search without language restrictions and graded the methodologic quality of the study. They only included randomized control trials of patients with sciatica that reported overall pain intensity, leg pain intensity, back pain intensity, and disability status. They excluded studies that were not randomized control trials or the patients didn't have sciatica or lacked a placebo control or did not have epidural injections. So, you know, in their paper, they said 25 studies, but there were only 19 trials that they were able to meta-analyze, and that had close to 2,500 patients in the meta-analysis. And this was an increase of six from the 2012 review. The quality of the included trials were low to moderate, with most trials having high risk of bias because the studies failed to conceal which group you were in, hmm, or blinding participants or clinicians. That's a big one. Epidural corticosteroid injections were statistically more effective than placebo in reducing short-term leg pain, N of 8 studies, short-term disability, N of 12 studies, and may be slightly more effective in reducing short-term overall pain, 10 studies. Epidural corticosteroid injections were not superior to placebo in 13 other metrics, so they had 16 outcomes. So this is a good example of the limitations of systematic reviews in general. They are only as good as the quality of the included study, or GIGO, garbage in, garbage out. And because of the high risk of bias due to the lack of blinding and allocation concealment, we should be very skeptical of the small statistical difference in only three out of 16 outcomes. And remember, the more outcomes you have, the more chance that you will find something statistically significant. The conclusions were also misleading when they say epidural corticosteroid injections are effective for reducing leg pain and disability in sciatica based on 25 RCTs. But wait a minute. The positive results only came from 8 to 12 studies, not the entire 25 included in the systematic review. Now, they did correctly identify the effects were small and short-term, but did not mention in their conclusions the high risk of bias. Rant over. And he's just getting started. (laughs) And even the ones that showed a statistical difference showed less than 10 on a 100-point scale for pain difference. And then, you know, whenever you're going to do something like this, an injection, you're putting a medicine in someone's back. You want to know the benefits, but you also want to know the harms. And the evidence for the safety was very low quality. Well, thank you for bringing in the difference between statistical significance and clinical significance, because that's important. And of course, harm is systematically underreported in randomized control trials and in systematic reviews. Bottom line. There continues to be a lack of high-quality evidence to support the use of epidural steroid injections in the treatment of sciatica. Paper 8. Abstract number eight, prevalence, cost, and consequences of low-value pre-procedural urinalysis in the U.S. This is JAMA Internal Medicine, August 2021. It's in their great less is more series. And 
Ken, there's nothing that gets me going besides possibly prediabetes, like unnecessary preoperative testing. We know that wasteful preoperative testing is rampant. Unnecessary tests don't change management, are not recommended. They're annoying for patients and doctors alike. Guidelines recommend against them. Doctors don't even want preoperative tests. I published a qualitative study where we talked to primary care doctors, surgeons, and anesthesiologists about preoperative tests. The primary care doctors said they did it because the surgeons asked them to. The surgeons said they did it because they were worried about what the anesthesiologist wanted. And the anesthesiologist said, meh, we don't need tests. I know. So is there a top of one of these preoperative tests that really get under your saddle? <laughs> it's funny you should ask. Mm. <laughs> yes. So your analysis is certainly one of them. The other one that I tell the residents is maybe you don't have to bicker about a CBC or a PTT and otherwise healthy patients. They're super wasteful, but they're not going to cause harm. But a chest x-ray, especially in here in Arizona, is going to lead so often to a workup that it's going to involve a CT. And your analysis certainly falls into that category. It may lead to antibiotic use, which can lead to adverse effects, antimicrobial resistance. So your analysis is definitely high on the list of unnecessary preoperative tests that may cause harm. So these authors performed a cohort study to analyze inpatient and outpatient episodes of procedural and surgical care to assess prevalence and cost of low-value pre-procedural urinalysis in the U.S. from 2007 to 2017. They looked at commercial and Medicare claims. They excluded kidney and urologic procedures and also cesarean deliveries. Remarkably, this is a study of 13 million procedures and 25% of them had urinalyses done. And depending on the procedure, between 84 and 94% of them were unindicated. I love this. They call these not plausibly indicated. And <laughs> between 6 and 28% of urinalyses are followed by antibiotics. So just go ahead and every four times you do a urinalysis, just plan on getting a call or looking at the labs and having to prescribe antibiotics. The four procedure categories with the most unnecessary urinalyses are joint replacement procedures, prostate surgery, spine surgery, and gynecologic surgery. They estimate that this cost $49 million on unnecessary UAs and $5 million on unnecessary antibiotics. And the authors in another just classic understatement, quote, practice patterns remain entrenched. So <laughs> that's the end of quote. This is my quote now. How can we call ourselves an evolved health system when we're just wasting this much just ridiculousness? How can we consider ourselves excellent? This is just another example. Why do we not have the will to eliminate this harmful waste? I read the paper and I said, wow, this is big data doctor bashing paper. <laughs> there, you know, because you said like millions, right? But you know that it's going to cost not millions, but I've got to put my finger up to the corner of my mouth. It's going to cost billions with a B dollars to address all these 90% of millions of urinalyses that were done pre-procedural that were not necessary. People, just stop. Bottom line. Please work with your colleagues and your health system to figure out a way to stop ordering unnecessary preoperative urinalyses.
So this will be an interlude before number nine. But boy, you were full of piss and vinegar on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Paper nine. Abstract number nine. The association of inadvertent nine-valent human papillomavirus vaccine in pregnancy with spontaneous abortion and adverse birth outcomes. And this was in JAMA Open 2021. Steve, we've talked often about the efficacy of vaccines on PCMA. This study is to determine if there's an association between the nine-valent human papillomavirus vaccine exposure in pregnancy and birth outcomes. So they're looking at harms. And so we've also talked about HPV vaccination, usually talking about efficacy. So this is focusing on harm. This was a retrospective cohort study looking at the data from the vaccine safety data link which is a large collaborative group between the CDC and a number of other healthcare systems like Kaiser Permanente. And the exposure, because this is a retrospective cohort study, the exposure was to the nine-valent HPV vaccination, and it was determined by using the electronic health record as to being done before pregnancy, and they define that as before 16 weeks prior to the last menstrual period, so 16 to 22 weeks. So if it was any time before that, peri-pregnancy was defined as six weeks before the last menstrual cycle, and then actually during pregnancy did they get exposed to this vaccine. Now, they excluded pregnancy loss in under six weeks, and that's important, and we'll come to that later. Therapeutic abortions, ectopic pregnancies, multi-gestations, and exposure to at least one medicine that increases the risk of abortion or birth defects. So they wanted to tease those things out and just try to focus in on the HPV. The main outcome were spontaneous abortion, and that was based on medical record reviews, preterm and small for gestational age births, again identified by EHR and birth data, and major structural birth defects based on diagnostic codes. They identified almost 1,500 pregnancies, and about a third were exposed before the pregnancy, about a third peri-pregnancy, and about a third during pregnancy. When they looked at the exposure during or peri-pregnancy, so within six weeks, it was not, I'll repeat, not associated with spontaneous abortions, preterm birth, small for gestational age birth, or major structural defects. And when it comes to medical interventions like vaccination, we always must consider the potential benefits and the potential harms. And this study provides some data to inform the potential harm discussion. But the biggest limitation is that it's an observational study and they can't control for unmeasured covariance and they can only claim associations. The other big issue is that there were 80 spontaneous abortions, but 165 pregnancies were excluded because of pregnancy loss at less than six weeks or a blight of ovum or unconfirmed pregnancy. So we don't know if exposure either during pregnancy, now only up to the first six weeks, or in that early peri-pregnant within six weeks could have increased the number of spontaneous abortions in an under six-week age group. So we just don't know that because they excluded those. Yeah, and it's very, very hard to study a rare side effect of a medication and related to pregnancy. And this is not saying that we should be giving the HPV vaccine during pregnancy, but if your patient comes to you and is very worried that they got it by accident because they didn't know they were pregnant, 
this to me is enough evidence that you can really strongly reassure the patient that they're fine and, you know, reduce another barrier to getting this vaccine, which basically prevents cancer. Like, how amazing would it be if we had a vaccine to prevent cancer? And we do. And this is more evidence that it's safe in more patients. I like what you did there, Steve, with, you know, really reassuring because, you know, there can be a lot of guilt associated with that and a lot of, oh my goodness, and second guessing and if I had only known and those types of things. And I really want to lower the stress and anxiety of patients. And so being able to say, listen, we do have a published study that says you really don't have to worry. So I really like that aspect of what you said. Bottom line. This study represents weak evidence supporting the safety of the HPV vaccination during pregnancy. Paper 10. Abstract number 10, placebo, the unknown variable in a controlled trial. JAMA Internal Medicine, May 2021. I think we're both fascinated about placebo and kind of the the mind-body connection and how strong the placebo is. Like, in that epidural study, how strong the placebo, if you subject yourself to getting an injection in your back, you're really gonna convince yourself that that's helpful. And so we talk about placebo-controlled trials and we talk about how placebo is a strong effect. I've never seen an article that talks about what actually are the characteristics of the placebos, so I thought this was super interesting. We have to match the characteristics of the drug to be studied We don't want to cause additional harm, but also they have to be indistinguishable because if a patient knows they're getting an intervention, they're much more likely to think that it's effective. So it's really important the placebo is well matched to whatever the intervention is. And there's a great example in this article from an article that you and I talked about at the beginning of this year, Ken, for icosapent ethyl which was a 2019 study, which was, it's like a fish oil derivative. And so the placebo was a mineral oil that was meant to mimic fish oil. But then when they looked back, there was some concern that this placebo might actually be a little bit harmful. So when we talked about the icosapent ethyl, we were not super excited about it. The benefit was pretty minimal. It's super expensive. And any difference could have been shrunk because maybe the placebo is actually harmful. So placebos are really an unknown variable. I also didn't know that they may be proprietary. They had a great example of a drug company that charged so much for the placebo that they couldn't even do the study. So that might be another way the drug company can like pull some shenanigans to not get their drug studied when you want to. And journals do not require studies to disclose the contents of a placebo. Sometimes you can find the regulatory data to uncover errors but sometimes you can't find the regulatory data. And there's another example of stuff in the oseltamivir flu trials and that maybe the placebo caused GI symptoms. So oseltamivir, as we've talked about, is already marginal and has side effects, but the placebo might have also had side effects. So what the editors say here is the contents of a placebo is variable and lack of knowledge of the contents could undermine clinical studies and even clinical decisions. Yeah, I think we need more transparency, not less. And this was a fascinating read. It's a quick read. It's only two pages. So I would encourage people, even if they've listened to this wonderful review that you just gave, why not pick up the paper and and read those two pages? Because it was really good. 
I was looking at this going, this is just another way the pharmaceutical companies can game the system. Because, you know, when we're doing this, we have a placebo in our head that's going to be this inert thing or something like that. And then they're testing an intervention, a pharmaceutical agent, and you want to see superiority. But if they can push that the placebo tilts it towards the other way, then the delta between the two becomes greater. And so you have game the system to find a greater effect size and can claim superiority. So I thought this was really an interesting way that, you know, a placebo could be manipulated. And I mean, once you start getting down this rabbit hole, it can take you really far down. When you mentioned the the thing about the oils and stuff like that, one of the examples that you have to watch in trials is when they have a placebo that you can unmask the treatment group. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the last couple of years of, you know, using isopropyl alcohol, those little alcohol wipes that we wipe the top of vaccine bottles and sterilize things with to be used as an anti-nauseant. And so you crack open one of these little pads, you wave it under their nose and you smell it. And it has that very medicinal smell because of the isopropyl alcohol. And what they compare these studies to always is the saline little pad. But have you ever smelt a saline pad? I mean, do you know which group you're in when you're taking the, whoo, that's strong stuff, that isopropyl alcohol? Boy, you know, my nausea feels a lot better, doctor, compared to the person who got the, yeah, I got nothing, I smell nothing. It should be matched, right? So if they had some peppermint smell to it or something, something that would suggest that something active was being done so you couldn't unmask the placebo. But this was a great pick. I'm glad you picked it and I really enjoy reading it. And again, I would encourage others to read it as well. But it's like, it's super exhausting, Ken, because, you know, we've been (laughs) doing this a long time. I've been listening to PCMA for decades and now I have another thing I have to worry about. Give us a break here. We're doing our best to evaluate articles and now we have to even wonder about the quality of the placebo. Yeah, no, I'm going to have to add a quality checklist to my randomized control trials that, you know, go, are these the patients I treat? Okay, did they adequately randomize them? Did they blind them? Was it placebo controlled? And then sub tick. Okay, what was that placebo? And what's in the ingredients? And do we have to mount some kind of legal action to try to Freedom of Information Act to try to tease that out of the pharmaceutical companies or the principal investigators because they talked about the difficulty that it was trying to get, hey, uh, I read your study. Uh, I'd really like to know what you use for the placebo. And it was like crickets. Yeah. So is your placebo as nasty as the drug, but not any or nastier <laughs> in the other direction? Bottom line. We may have to pay attention to the actual contents of the placebo in the future. Well, thanks, Steve, for doing another 10 papers with me. Yes, that was a good time. As always, and we'll be back next month for the holiday edition, I guess, because it's in December. We'll have this nice holiday edition. I'll take a good look to see if I can find a bonus paper for that one, because I always like doing the bonus papers. But until next time, I hope everybody is staying healthy out there and stay skeptical of the medical research that you read. Take care, everybody. sum this all up. Summary.
the summary. Let's jump into it with PCMA, and you are reviewing Ken's papers, Vanessa. That's right. I'm up first. PCMA, Article 1. Paper number one, Risk of Progression to Diabetes Among Older Patients with Pre-Diabetes from the JAMA Internal Medicine 2021. This study looked at rates of progression to diabetes for elderly patients who are identified as having pre-diabetes. Setting aside the very valid debate about whether prediabetes is a valid construct, this study showed that this particular patient population was three times more likely to die than to go on and develop diabetes. Paper 2 comes from the Sprint Research Group, the final report of trial-intensive versus standard blood pressure control in NEJM. And first off, I can't believe it's been six years already since the Sprint trial came out. I recall debating their results with our good friend of the show, Andrew Bilt. Like, we got into it way back then. Holy smokes. And I am still skeptical of these results. I can't argue with the mortality benefit associated with lowering systolic blood pressure to less than 120. But the side effects, wow, Vanessa. Like my practice, I'm seeing an awful lot more presyncope and orthostatic changes since we started being more aggressive with blood pressure management. It's not all good. For sure. I mean, you live longer, but you're going to spend the rest of your life lying down because if you stand up, you faint. Paper number three, Diagnostic Accuracy of the 4AT for Delirium Detection in Older Adults Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis from the journal Age and Aging, November 2020. This tool, the 4AT, is supposed to help us detect delirium, but from this paper, it isn't clear that this will actually provide clinically relevant information. We will probably hear more about this topic in the future, so be sure to stay tuned to this channel, but I wouldn't be jumping onto this particular bandwagon right now. Stephen Kent's interpretation of this paper actually surprised me because our geriatricians endorse this wholeheartedly, like we're moving to using this an awful lot in clinical care under their guidance, so I was surprised to hear it did not get the PCMA stamp of approval. We're interested to hear what other people out there think. Let us know if you've been using it and what your thoughts are. Paper 4, Ovarian Cancer Population Screening and Mortality After Long-Term Follow-Up in the UK Collaborative Trial of Ovarian Cancer Screening in The Lancet. And oh, how we all wish there was a good screening test or test for ovarian cancer. And it was very disappointing that in this study, none of the three arms led to improved ovarian cancer mortality. Whoever eventually devises a useful screening regime for this and other conditions like this really should be nominated for a Nobel Prize in Medicine. You heard it here first. Paper number five, rates of re-bleeding, thrombosis, and mortality associated with resumption of anticoagulant therapy after anticoagulant-related bleeding in the CMAJ 2021. This is certainly a question that I grapple with when I'm on the ward or in the clinic because who wants to be the doctor who prematurely restarts the anticoagulant on the patient who is admitted with a big bleed? Not me. Well, what this paper revealed was not exactly newsworthy in that if you had bled once on anticoagulants, you have a risk of re-bleeding. But it did remind us to chat with our patients about the risks and benefits so that everyone is on the same page. And if you do have this chat with the patient, please document it and the decision that was taken so the next doc down the line doesn't contradict that decision. Paper 6, Tympanostomy Tubes or Medical Management for Recurrent Acute Otitis Media in the New England Journal of Medicine. This paper showed that ongoing medical management rather than tympanostomy tubes could be an option for children with recurrent otitis media. And while there were issues with patient crossover between groups, this paper really could change practice. 
And as the kid who remembers losing out on a couple of summers worth of swimming because of tubes, this study makes me happy that maybe future generations of kids won't have to watch from the poolside chair or the beach towel as their friends have the time of their lives in the water. Paper number seven, epidural corticosteroid injections for sciatica, an abridged Cochrane systematic review and meta-analysis from Spine 2020. This article in Spine was a systematic review and meta-analysis of epidural corticosteroid injections compared to placebo for the treatment of sciatica. It seemed that corticosteroid injections might be better than placebo for three out of 16 outcomes, but the quality of evidence in the studies was not great and the number of studies was small, and there was a high risk of bias. So, our conclusion? No great evidence for the use of epidural injections for sciatica. Paper 8. Prevalence, Costs, and Consequences of Low-Value Pre-Procedural Urinalyses in the U.S. And I really can't believe that we check urines before most surgeries. Did you know that, Vanessa? I did not know that. It was idiotic. I know. I'm at a... <laughs> I'm at a bit of a loss to understand how that could possibly add anything to a knee replacement or, say, a tonsillectomy. So I really, I really don't understand. But I do take heart because ERAS, the ERAS movement, that's really revolutionizing anesthesia care. I'm sure that they'll undoubtedly stop this practice before too long because this is not evidence-based and it's, whoa, spending a lot of money that doesn't need to be spent. Paper number nine, Association of Inadvertent Nine-Valent Human Papillomavirus Vaccine in Pregnancy with Spontaneous Abortion and Adverse Birth Outcomes, JAMA Open 2021. So this was a retrospective cohort study looking at harms associated with the nine-valent HPV vaccination, either before pregnancy, peri-pregnancy, or during pregnancy. They looked at stats related to rates of birth defects, babies being small for gestational age, or rates of spontaneous abortions, and found that vaccines given during the peri-pregnancy period or during pregnancy itself did not result in any significant harms. Now, the quality of evidence wasn't great, but it's certainly reassuring that there are no harms detected. So you can certainly use this information in any conversations that you have with your patients. Paper 10, Placebo, the Unknown Variable in a Controlled Trial, Gemma Internal Med in May 2021. And it does sound like now I have to evaluate the placebo that was used in each trial. Well, not, not Ken and Steve, everybody who does trials and everyone who reads them. But given this, I think we should give Ken and Steve a raise or at least a reasonable facsimile of a raise. A placebo raise. <laughs> it's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Okay, on Reviews and Perspectives with Hobart Lee, Hobie and I chatted about antibiotic stewardship. And we focused on the duration of therapy for common infections. Here's a spoiler. In case you haven't listened to the piece yet, the recommended duration of therapy is a lot shorter than what most of us prescribe. IgA vasculitis with Chris Drum. Chris Drum and I chat about Henoch-Shonlin purpura, or HSP, as is much easier to say. And Chris reminded us to think about this disease if we see a kid with a rash, abdominal and joint pain, and especially if we're seeing renal issues. While this is predominantly a pediatric diagnosis, remember, it can happen in adults. So do not, do not be fooled. Rural Medicine Talks. Now, moving on to rural medicine, Adrian Salim joined me this month, and we chatted about strategies for bridging a patient with end-stage renal disease who now urgently needs to have dialysis initiated. If it's going to be hours before they can get to a dialysis center, then you are going to need to care for them attentively as they wait. 
So Adrian reviews techniques for managing hyperkalemia, acute volume overload, and those always scary acid-base disturbances. The Generalist. Now moving on to The Generalist. While I think a lot of us have a good sense of what to do with a hypothermic patient in the emergency department or even in an ambulance, this piece with Josh Newson reviewed a ton of basic things to do to prevent or temper hypothermia in the field. Key among those would be remembering how common hypothermia is in the trauma patients, reminding us that just by lying on the cool ground, patients are going to lose a huge amount of their heat, and of course, if you need to warm up some water or fluids, put them in your pants. There is, of course, quite a bit more to this piece than that, so be sure to go back and listen if you missed it the first time around. Well, that's it for us this month, but if you have yet to have your fill of CME, please head on over to check out MRAP proper and EMA and all the other offerings that we have here at MRAP. That wraps it up for another month, Heidi. Thank you so much, and I'm sure we'll be chatting again soon. And until then, keep doing what you do, because what you do matters. <laughs>